Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It is Tuesday, the 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. In honor of Independence Day, we are going to re-air a portion of an interview that we did with Ken Langone. Now, Ken Langone uh, has had quite a history, by the way. If you live in New York, you probably know him, the, know the name because you go by NYU and there's like the Langone Hospital. But for those of us who are old enough to remember Ken Langone was one of the folks involved with starting Home Depot. And this goes back because he had an investment banking background and he did some business with Ross Perot and then came Home Depot. Well, he came on our podcast, joined us in the studio after he had written and released a book called I Love Capitalism. And the subtitle is An American Story. So what we thought would be fun for you is if you didn't hear that interview, it's, it is kind of a, uh, an interesting way to think about Independence Day through a financial angle. And so if you dig this, go buy Ken's book. It was, I think, 2018 was when we had him in the studio. So he's a, he's a great storyteller and a lot of fun. So uh, the kid from Long Island makes good. Here is our interview with Ken Langone. You were born to uh, Italian-American parents on the North Shore of Long Island. Yep. They, who's first generation, your grandparents or your parents? My parents are first generation. Your parents are first generation. Working class. Dad was a plumber? My father was a plumber. He went to the eighth grade. Yep. My mother worked in the school cafeteria. She went to the seventh grade. And you lived on what you sort of describe as like the bad side of the tracks in a nice town. It was where the poor people lived. Yeah. You know, we had a, I think my parents paid $4,000 for the house they bought, which they couldn't buy. And they were living, renting the house for a few years. It was, it was uh, right by the public school. How is it that your parents, who were not educated, were so encouraging that you become educated? Because a lot of people who grew up as tradespeople, children of tradespeople, mm-hmm. go into the trade. My father made me learn to be a plumber. On weekends in high school, I used to help him. So I could do all the things a plumber does, wipe a joint, hit a, hit a joint for copper tubing with lead, uh, thread a pipe, cut pipe, all this, this stuff. This is great because I need some work on my, my Go my to Home apartment. Depot. We've oh. got a lot of people <laughs> that can really help you. And we've got great prices and everything you need, okay? Okay, so you learn you learn the trade, but, but what was it that they knew about being educated? My parents, God bless them, didn't blame themselves for where they were. They felt if they had the chance for an education, they'd have done better than they did. And we used to go to my grandparents in Port Washington, 
for lunch every Sunday. This is they all got together. We would drive through a wealthy section of town called Roslyn Estates. And when we would drive through there, every time we'd drive through there, Mom would say to me, I was sitting in the back of the panel truck. She was sitting in the front on a, on a makeshift chair seat. And she'd say, would you like to live here someday? And I said, yes. She said, well, you're going to have to work hard and get an education. So she okay. knew. Okay. Well, they understood because they knew they could be capable of doing so much more, but they lacked the tickets. And meanwhile... You, they're telling you be educated, and you say you weren't such a great student. Uh, I, I didn't. You know, I, <laughs> I wanted to make money. I hear you. You say it in like very plain English. Wait, right here on page six. I loved making money. Yeah, I was. Hell, I, 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 I delivered newspapers. I was a caddy. I worked in a gas station. I worked in a butcher shop. I used to take the cardboard out from the liquor store. There was a supermarket in Rosen called M and H that opened up. At the same time, I was working for the butcher shop, which was a competitor. At nights, I was helping them set up the store without the butcher shop knowing I was working two jobs. I mean, it's interesting. You say, I was never academically curious, and I didn't apply myself at all. So, But you did say math came easy to you, so that oh, was, was good. Numbers were just like that. Tell me about how you then headed to Bucknell University. How'd you get there? Understand that that I did okay in high school. Numbers and me got along very well, and I still do. Mm-hmm. I had pretty much convinced myself that I wasn't a student, and I wanted to go into the Marine Corps in 1953 because the Korean War was still on. Mm-hmm. My brother was in the Army, my older brother. I only had one brother. And I took the position that this is what I wanted to do. Well, Eisenhower had different plans at the end of the war, mm-hmm. so I said, what am I going to do? And I went to see friends of mine from Port Washington, Jim McNamara, J.R. Davis, Stan Cutler, they were at Bucknell. Uh, I went there, and it was house party weekend. I said, Jesus, this is what you do in college. <laughs> I could do this really well. Well, this fits me. I, yes, I can execute so on this. So they had Saturday morning classes, and that morning, that Saturday morning, they said, look, we have to go to class. Why don't you go up and see the guy over in the building over there? He's the guy that lets people in. It was called the registrar. His name was George Faint. And I went over, and I, he said, I'm sitting there, and he said, what are you waiting for? I said, well, my friend said I should come see you. What about? I said, well, I'm in high school. You're senior? I said, yeah, well, what are you going to do? I don't know. He said, well, come on in my office. So we talked for an hour. The following Thursday, I get a letter from him that if I want to come to Bucknell, he'd be happy to have me. That may be the best decision that anyone from Bucknell ever made. No, the best decision anybody from Bucknell ever made, Yeah, and it's in the book, was my economics professor wanted to know if anybody ever told me I was stupid. And I said, yes, everybody. And he said to me, you know the only sin? You believed it. And That's he great said, advice. And he said to me, how are you doing in your other classes? I said, about as bad as I'm doing in your class. He said, well, you know, you're going to be out of here in January. I said, yeah, I know that. And he said to me, is that what you want to happen? I said, no, I don't. He's okay. He said, I'll make a deal with you. I'll reach out to all your other professors. You promise me you'll work, give it everything you got, and we'll see if we can put you out of this nosedive. And they did. It's something interesting to me that many people will say the difference between someone making it and not making it, whether and you're, I know you're involved in the charter school movement. Right. It can be anyone from a coach, a music teacher, an academic mm-hmm. teacher who just says, hey, you, you, Ken, what's going on here? And they see something in you. Yeah. Look, every place I look, I see people that I know have helped me to do what I've done. And in many cases, have done more than I've done myself. And that is why you say you are not a self-made man. I am man. the furthest thing from a self-made man you'll ever know. 
Okay, and I, I, my regret on that, I'm not regret, I hope I didn't, I, this, I don't know how many hundreds of names there are in there, but I hope I didn't leave anybody out. But if I did, it was a bad memory, yeah. not that they didn't participate. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you left college and you uh, said you're going to go, you, you know, it's like uh, where the bank robber goes, he's going to go to the bank. Uh, that's where the money is. Right. You said the money's in Wall Street. So yeah. you graduate and you go talk to some folks. I do love this advice uh, from... Uh, Maurice Hart, and he says, quote, let me tell you the lay of the land. We have Jewish firms for Jewish kids. We have WASP firms for WASP kids. The Irish, we make the clerks. We put them on the floor of the stock exchange. Italian kids like you, we put in the back office. What'd you think when you heard that? Uh, I didn't appreciate the fact that he was discrimination. But I know one thing, I made my mind up. That ain't going to hold me back. You have no idea the price we're paying for our entitlement system in America. Not the money, but the number of people that don't get a chance to develop self-respect by doing it for themselves. You've got to respect yourself first before you're going to respect anybody else. Somebody who has no respect for themselves has a difficult time seeing good in somebody else. I, I view that more as an opportunity than as a setback. So I want to talk a little bit about how you did get into Wall Street selling securities, mm -hmm. and that was in the early 60s, and, and talk a little bit about what you did and how you then ultimately met Ross Perot. Okay. I was called back. I was in the Army once in, in 58 for six months, and then I got called back when they built a wall around Berlin in 61. When I got out in June of 62, I made Wall Street had had the biggest crash it had had since 1929 in May, and everybody was leaving Wall Street, and I said, hey, this is my moment to strike. And my father-in-law, God bless him, he was in the business, and he set me up with a series of appointments. And the fact that people were leaving and the firms were cutting back, I kept going, and I really was getting discouraged, but I wasn't gonna give up. I had a wife and one child, and a second one due in September of that year. And I met a man, and he said to me, I'd like to hire you. It was Jack Cullen. He said, I'd like to hire you. But he said, we're cutting back, and we just can't do it. And I said, but he said, I think you're going to be a big success. He said, I think you got certain talent. I said, what's that? He said, well, you strike me as a very sensitive guy, and that's a great, great talent to have hmm. if you're going to sell. So he thanked me and said he couldn't help me. And I got in the elevator, and I went down to the floor, down to the lobby and I thought to myself I said wait a minute I went right back upstairs and I said I'd like to see Mr. Cullen again and I went in and he said what's up did you forget something I said no I said let me ask you a question what do you pay a secretary he said we pay him about 150 bucks a week I said can you pay me as a secretary he said what do you mean I said can you pay me 150 a week he said well you can't make it on that I said no that's my problem I was teaching at NYU at night mm. by the way consider this barely Ten years from when I was told I was going to get thrown out of college, I'm now teaching at one of the great business programs in the country. And so I said, I'll make it. Don't worry about it. So then I said, but there's only one condition. You have to give me every account you're not doing business with. And boy, then I went to work. That's great. And so you were selling. Selling like crazy. And you are a salesman at heart. I love selling Even things. if you love the numbers, the selling, you're a relationship guy. That's the sensitivity that it's he saw. It's all about the people. Absolutely. And that includes companies. Mm -hmm. Great companies are run by great people. Home Depot is a success it is because we had people like Bernie and Arthur and Pat 
These were our partners when we started the company. Mm-hmm. All right, and these men were unique and special in every respect. All right, let's get back to Ross Press. Right. How'd you meet him? I went to a party in Washington in uh, in 1968, and I met a man there who said he was Perot's partner and Washington representative. Now, I didn't know who the hell Perot was. I didn't know what he did. And he started telling me, and I said, gee, that sounds like that's interesting. And he said to me, I said, gee, I said, is there a chance I can get in to meet this man? He says, well, call me on Monday. I'll see what I can do. The name was Jack Height. I called Jack on Monday. He said, look, you got an appointment. He said two things. You got 30 minutes. And he said, don't use any bad words. So I said, and you're oh, a little rough on the on the bad words. Side. I am what I am. I know, me too. Okay, can't do it here, but it is yeah, what it is. I understand. You know, if you live in a trading room long enough, that becomes that's part exactly of, that becomes part of the territory. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I went down and I met with him, and exactly at the point I was supposed to get in, I got into his office, and we were thirty minutes, and for twenty nine and a half minutes, he told me everything he'd heard from Goldman Sachs, Whitewell, Merrill Lynch, Clark Dodge, GH, all these firms that were really trying to get his deal. And when he got all done, it was about thirty seconds left. And he said to me, "What do you think of what I just said?" And I think, "Well, I blew the thirty minute rule, right?" Right. So I said, "Mr. Perot, I said, pardon me, that's the biggest pile of horseshit I've ever heard in my life." <laughs> That's awesome. And he looked back, he took back, and he said, what do you mean? And we talked for 13 hours. We talked till 1 o'clock the next morning. Good God. I had not brought any clothes down, so he was driving us around Dallas looking for a drugstore where I could buy some toiletries and a T-shirt. Oh, my God. And we found out in that meeting we were married the same hour, the same day, the same year. His values and his integrity was so precious. And I, I said to him, I said, I'll never throw a curve at you. And he said, oh, he said, I was going to make a decision by Friday. This was Wednesday. He says, I'm going to put it off. He said, let's get to know each other better. So over three months, uh, he played with my head a couple of times. One time he called me and said, you know, he said, Ken, the thing that bothers me about you is you don't show your enthusiasm very well. I said, what? I'll be down there in five yeah, minutes. Right. You think that this thing, which is basically builds like the electronic infrastructure for big municipalities. No, what they did was they ran data processing operations. They, were called out, they weren't called outsourcing them, but that's what they were. They would send their highly trained, capable programmers and scientists into these companies and help them get the most they could get out of their computers. It's amazing. So you then become the guy who runs the firm where the, where they Well, I, I got that deal. I'd been made a partner before that. I was made a partner in 66. I got that deal and I felt pretty good about my, I was kind of full of myself, frankly. <laughs> you know, I think today I might be less arrogant than I was then, but I was floating around. I got this deal from all these other firms and I did it, blah, blah, blah. By the way, I didn't do it alone. Again, Mm -hmm. we had a team of people at Pressbridge that were fabulous. And when I gave this big number to Pro, 100 times earnings was an unheard of multiple. Yeah, and you got more than that. He got 115. He thought... When he asked me driving through the tunnel to sign the papers in Jersey, he said, well, this is what you're going to tell me. I'm not getting 100. I said, you're right. And he got a little perplexed. And his wife, Margaret, was in the car with me, and we're in the back seat of a limousine, two seats, looking at each other. And I said, yeah, you're not going to get 100 times earning. He said, see, Margaret, we're all alike up here, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay, look, if you want 100, that's okay with me. So then Margaret said, well, what were you going to do with it? I said, well, I was going to do it at 115 times earnings, but if you only want 100. Yeah, that's fine. We did it at 115 times earnings, by the way. So I want to just flash forward, and I would love for you to tell the story of Bernie Marcus, Arthur Blank, and the roots of the Home Depot. Okay. 
The route started, a very good friend of mine in Philadelphia, Gary Obam, had a chain of home centers who I had brought public called Panorama. And they were experiencing difficulties, 75, 76. And Gary had hired me as a consultant. And we were in his office one day, and I said, look, I said, we ought to have a model. If we're going to fix this, we got to look who's, who's the best out there. Now, the home center industry then was regional. You had Rickle, Pergamon, Channel here. You had Heckinger's in the Mid-Atlantic. You had Scotty's in Florida. And you had Handy Dan and Angel's out in the way. He's, so Gary says, Ken is a guy out there, Bernie Marcus. He's fabulous. Does a great job. I said, okay, can you get me an appointment? Long story short, the next day, I was in L.A. having lunch with Bernie Marcus. And I met him, and then and now, spectacular human being. And we bonded. And he was running a company that was 19% owned by the public and 81% owned by an industrial company called Dalen. I ended up buying almost all the 19% in the market. I kept buying it and buying it for myself and for clients. And he persuaded me one day to sell my stock to the guy that owned 81%. I said, look, the guy doesn't like you, and he's going to fire you. And he said, no, no, he needs me. He doesn't know the business. I said, I'm telling you, I'm warning you. Nope. So this guy paid me a very significant premium to buy us out, all of myself and my investors. Four months after he bought us out, he fired Bernie, he fired Arthur, he fired Ron Brill. And Bernie calls me up, no health insurance, no stock, no income, three kids, I need a job. I said, forget about a job. When can you come to New York? And the next day he comes to New York. We sit in the Peacock Alley at the Waldorf Astoria with him, myself, and a fellow by the name of Jerry Grossman. Uh, a lawyer, a labor lawyer, and they had committed a labor law violation. That's all it was, civic. Mm-hmm. It means the union gets certified. Bernie earlier had told me, we owned the stock for two years. In that two-year period, Bernie and I used to go walk store openings. When they were opening a new store, I'd go with them, and it was wonderful. And one walk in Houston, he says to me, don't get too excited because somebody's going to figure out the Achilles heel and it's going to change this industry. I don't know. He said, well, tell me. I said, tell me. No, no, I can't. I can't. No, I'm not going to tell you. So when he got fired, I said, he comes to New York. I said, all right, you just got hit in the ass with a golden horseshoe. Let's do that thing you said is going to change the industry. He said, what do you mean? And I reminded him, and he said to me, let's do it. And we initially went to Perot, and it wasn't going to work. So I went and lined up 40 people that all had done very well with Handy Dan, and we put together $2 million, Arthur, Bernie, and right after we incorporated they found another guy, a merchandising genius by the name of Pat Farah, mm-hmm. and we brought him on board. And he, uh, he was two months after we were founded, but he was effectively one of the founders of the company as well. And the rest is history. So one thing that I found interesting was that uh, started with a... The aim was to open four stores in Atlanta. Two of them opened, but it was not so We had a cool... We had, no. Hell, early on, Bernie was standing in front of the store offering people a dollar if they would walk in and look what was in the store. And why do you think that was? Because the concept was so new? Yeah, it was brand new. When you had this huge, and you know, we had challenges. We didn't have a lot of money. And so when they were negotiating with the vendors, we got the vendors because we didn't want to have empty shelves. They gave us empty boxes with their labels on them. So people thought we had all this merchandise and all the overheads was air. Mm. Mm. So when did you have the sense that it was going to really be as big as it became. What was the beginning when you were sitting? When, when Bernie got fired. Talk about that. I, look, I Bernie is fabulous. And I knew Bernie was going to be a big success. And Bernie knew the business. Bernie had a great knack for having good people around him. That's critical. Mm-hmm. 
So I had a good start there, and Bernie had, and we still have a very close relationship. Mm-hmm. We had to persuade Arthur to come. He was not sure he wanted to do it. Pat Farrell was running his own store, which was not was doing very well in terms of physically, but financially it was a disaster, and eventually he had to bankrupt it. It was then when we got Pat to join up with us, and we did it. But I never thought we'd have 400,000 employees, but I thought we had a chance to have a great business. So I want to talk a little bit about, I want to kind of finish the Home Depot section just by right. talking a little bit about how you have these founders. Obviously, it's getting big. There's different skill sets mm-hmm. of starting something right. and being entrepreneurial right. and running a mature organization. Right. So talk a little bit about finding Arthur's successor. Okay. Bernie, Arthur, and I had agreed that we didn't have anybody in the company that if something happened to Arthur. So we hired Hydric and Struggles and it turns out at the time, coincidentally, I was on a board of General Electric, and this was, was, was when Jack Welch was going to make his decision about his successor. Unfortunately, he picked the wrong guy. It <laughs> turned out to be a disaster. Bob Nardelli was the only one, and Bob had done a great job. I was on the board of GE, and I saw the great as an operator. Yep. And this is what we needed. We, you know, we, we were growing. We were, don't forget, we were opening 200 stores a year then. Staggering amount of stores, and it was getting away from us. And so we brought Bob in. In fairness, Bob did a great job for four years. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, he sort of lost how whatever it was, what he had done in the first four years left a lot to be desired. And we had to make a change. We had a serious morale issue in the store. What do you think, in your mind, could you have identified some of Nardelli's weaknesses early on? I can't answer it objectively. Bob got caught up in whatever it was. But it was beginning to unravel this culture, this very precious culture we had about these kids that work in the stores. So I want to end because Mark is obsessed with Bernie Madoff. We have had Diana Henriquez, who wrote The Wizard of Lies on the program. She's a friend of mine. Mm. And um, you were featured in the movie version of that. Not exactly the right way to recount the story. So, But it uh, didn't happen that way. Yeah, exactly. That's what I want. I want to hear... What happened when you met Bernie Madoff? 2008, in the middle of the crash, the week Lehman Brothers went broke, we sold a company we had a big interest in called Choice Point to Reed Elsevier for cash. And thank God for Marty Lipton and his firm, Ed Hurley and the gang. They wrote a contract with Reed Elsevier that you couldn't get a drop of water through. Mm -hmm. Reed tried to claim force majeure. Mm -hmm. We said, "Uh uh-uh, we're settling. And so we got Friday night of the same week that Lehman went broke. (laughs) You got a big wire in. We got $4.3 billion in cash. (laughs) That wasn't all ours, but we had a good piece. Yeah. A very dear friend of mine, a wonderful man, called me up and said, look, Bernie Madoff would like to meet you. This was a month and a half after that, in November. He said, why don't you meet with him? And so I have a partner that lived out in Sun Valley then, and I called up Steve Holzman, and I said, Steve, do me a favor. I said, I'm going to beat this guy Madoff. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. I said, but you probably might, because Steve understood all these different strategies and stuff. So Steve came in, and for the first 40, we're in his offices in the Lipstick Building on 3rd mm-hmm. Avenue. He's showing me all this art, like I really care. And finally, I said, Bernie, i got to go to a dinner. And I said, can we sit down and talk? And he's sure. So he sits down, and he starts talking about this and that and the other thing, and this put and that call and this straddle. And I'm sitting there, my eyes are glazing over. Steve is listening. And then he says to me, and look, he said, I can only take $500 million for this deal. He said, it's not big enough for me to give all of my existing clients, so I'm going to give it to you. 
uh, my first reaction was, wait a minute, how would I feel if I was one of his clients? And I found out he's got this phenomenal bird's nest on the ground, but he's given it to a guy he's never done business with before and keeping me out of it. I didn't say anything. I thought, well, Bernie, I got to leave for dinner. And so we thanked him. We got in the elevator. We went downstairs. And I said, Steve, I don't want to do business with this guy. I thanked him very much. I said, I don't want to do business with this guy. He said, why? I said, look, if he's going to screw his existing customers, I might be the next one to get screwed. I don't want to do it. I said, I think it's bad faith not to offer this deal, which is supposed to be a slam dunk deal to his people. Mm-hmm. He said, well, let me think about it. So the Friday after Thanksgiving of that week, Steve called me and said, you know, Ken, you're right. I don't want to do it. I said, well, do me a favor. Call him up and be polite and respectful. Just tell him we're going to pass. And that's how it happened. Mm. And Hollywood likes license. You know, they need drama. Exactly. Meeting this guy, he was teetering on the edge of... He was slick. Really? I wouldn't want to play poker with this guy. He knew he was going down when he right. was talking to us. That's what I think, like, timing-wise. If I was playing poker with this guy... He'd have all my clothes. He'd have all my houses. He'd have... This guy was Mr. Cool. I want to wrap up, and um, I know that the that capitalism is sort of the theme of the book and why you love it. That's really the story of your life. I want to also point out a couple of the things that mm-hmm. you say that... Um, you have curiosity. You are notorious for asking more questions than any other director on a board. Yep. Um, I didn't give a blank if my question showed how stupid I was. You... Also, I guess what's interesting is that um, you note that this is not a zero-sum game. And you, you say in the book you were a lifelong Republican for some time. Mm-hmm. But you also have said, spoken publicly about how you're concerned about income inequality. Absolutely. Could you explain that a little bit? Sure. If the gap between the well-off and the not-so-well-off gets big enough, you put the people that are not-so-well-off to say, hey, you know what, nothing's working for me. What happens? You get a Cuba, you get a Venezuela, you get a Russia. We've got to figure a way out to bring everybody to the party. The most exciting thing to me about Home Depot, a lot of things about it, we have 3,000 kids today who started in the parking lot, fresh out of high school, pushing carts in. They're multimillionaires. They're Is that multi- because of the stock or they work yeah, their no, way no, up? No, yeah, no, no, stock. Totally. No, yeah. no, we give them options and stock yeah. savings. Look, I think of my mother and father. They were down at that end of the spectrum, and I know how they struggle. Mm-hmm. We've got to do a better job. I don't have all the answers, but I know we, we can't allow these people, all of us as, a citizen, as citizens, we can't allow these people to not participate in this great dream called America. Well, okay, that is it. That's the program. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful and happy Independence Day. We are always delighted that you join us. If you've got a question, just go to our website, jillonmoney.com. Click on the Contact Us button. Write that question down. If you want to come on the air, check the box. And Mark does everything else. While you're on the website, check out all the content that lives there. And also subscribe to our new service. It's called Jill on Money Live. Lift someone up change your work, change your wealth, change your life. Happy Independence Day. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers 
the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework.